uh, my co-host, and he's currently fixing himself some coffee. Uh, Dave, so you're a coffee guy now, huh? It's my it's my new thing. Yeah. Well, I was I was telling you a little a few seconds ago, you I remember very specifically that you were never a coffee guy or a beer guy, which is interesting. Well, I drink I drink beer in college, like most people. Um, never coffee though, but I'm I'm into the I'm into the ritual of it. I invented I invented sugar cubes the other day. Okay. I've ever told you about how I keep inventing things that I don't think exist, but then people have to sadly tell me they already exist. You're like a you're like a startup sugar basically. Cube. <laughs> pretty much but yeah i was opening up the sugar to put it in my coffee and it was all clumped up and i said to amy man they should just they should make like clumped up sugar and then you wouldn't have to get a spoon dirty every time and she just sad, sadly walks away <laughs> sugar cubes that's that's a sugar cube you described do you I remember when that ice one cream, uh, ice cream trucks do you remember when that one startup yeah. invented uh, vending machines they were like, hey, it's it would be like a, a little box where you could put money in and just get whatever you wanted, but you could use an app to do it or something like that. And it's like, yeah, you just invented vending machines. <laughs> Dude, this this is going to sound a little off topic, but that's what we're all about. But I was reading this. Have you seen that thing where there's a – it's there's some website where these uh, like internet-minded philosophers get together and talk about various scenarios – there's something called Rocco's ba- Basilisk. That man, that sounds really familiar. What is it? I mean, I'm not going to explain it, but in a nutshell, if there was some super intelligent AI singularity, if you even thought about it existing, you would have to dedicate your life to making it exist or else it would punish you hmm. in the future because you you could have helped and didn't and it'll make a copy of you and torture you in some digital hell forever and it's very convoluted um but I, it's just it's obviously just um pascal's wager which is the old oldest thing in the world where believe in it's better to well it's actually it's it's presented differently but the idea of if you believe in a hell um or if you live your life like there's a hell, I don't even know what I'm saying. No, no, Pascal's wager <laughs> is it's better to just believe in God because on the off chance that there is hell, you don't want to go there. So you might as well cover all your bases. Yeah. See, look at that. That's why you run this thing. But I think it's actually wasn't, that isn't the intent. The in, it's always presented that way, but the intent is to prove that it's impossible to make someone believe in something. Hmm. So I think he, he came up with the wager as a, again, I know nothing about this topic, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think he came up with a wager to prove you can't force someone to believe because of course they would believe if it, if they could, because it would, it makes sense to believe you. There's, there's no law. You don't lose anything, you, but you have so much to lose if you don't. So anybody that doesn't do it, it must be because they're unable to believe and therefore shouldn't be punished or something. Does that make any sense? Not really. Um, but Speaking yeah, of hell, we are going to be talking about <laughs> the house that Jack built today, uh, which is the new film from, is it Von Trier? It's Von Trier, right? Probably. All I know is that the V is, is small, and I try to make sure I get that right every time. <laughs> I, I like it. I like to think of it. I don't think this is the way it's pronounced, but I like the idea that his name is Trier because it means like he's always trying. <laughs> like every movie, it's like, well, he he, he tried, you know. He tries real hard. Yeah. See, see the definition of a try hard. Mm-hmm. 
I think so, actually. I think he might be. I think that... Um, Lar- I think, Lars von Tryhard. Yeah, I think what he is is... Um, you know how you can be friends with people online who just clearly have addiction problems, like an alcohol addiction or something to that effect, and you know when they're drunk because they get on Facebook and just start saying the, the wildest shit. I think mm. that he's, uh, well, he's on record as being an alcoholic, and he was in AA after Melancholia, I think, after he was at the Cannes Film Festival for his film Melancholia when he said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I have sympathy for, for Hitler when he's kind of joking around. And, uh, you know, he's sitting there next to Kirsten Dunst and she like puts her hand, (laughs) she's described in the article that I read as being ashen faced and like putting her (laughs) hand on his shoulder and just being like, dude, stop. And he's like, no. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just a Nazi. And, uh, so it's one of those guys, like you could tell daddy had a few too many, uh, wine coolers. And he was riding high because he just, he knew he had a great movie under his belt. So he was feeling, he was feeling good. He was. That's what I get. That's when I get in the most trouble is when I'm feeling good. When I feel like I just did something good and I'm just like, I'm going to throw out some opinions, everybody. (laughs) Cause yeah, cause you do, you get this, uh, not you specifically, I'm, I'm speaking the general you, right? Uh, you do get this kind of thing when you do one thing, right? You're like, I do everything right. You know, (laughs) it's just like people, you know, I wrote this great story about somebody, you know, getting their, you know, asshole fucked by a, by a tentacle. So now I have to make sure whatever, everybody knows what I think about geopolitics. The, those two <laughs> things definitely go together, but, but no, but so, so he's, he does all this. And then this is, dude, this made me laugh so hard. And I'm paraphrasing. This isn't exactly it, but so he's on the wagon going to AA and stuff like that. And then he has uh, when the house that Jack built comes out, it actually gets accepted to can. He was persona non grata for a long time. But one of the guys who was high up on the board, however that shit works, was really caping for him and got him, you know, back to Cannes with this movie, right? And so he says in an interview, he's like, yeah, I've, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for, for seven years. He's like, but I'm at Cannes and you, you can't not, you can't not drink at Cannes. He's like, so he's like, so I get anxious. So I'm going to be doing a little drinking. And so I've, I don't think he said anything, but like that was... That made me laugh so hard because it felt like something that I would do. You know what I mean? Where I would yeah. go on Facebook and make this very dramatic, you know, kind of like, I'm never touching another drop of alcohol. And then like four posts later is like, well, you know, you can't you can't go to Hooters and not have a Bud Light. I mean, come on, guys. It's just, <laughs> I'm still on the wagon. <laughs> and plus, and plus, he was feeling good. He, he just got done good. with the movie and he was feeling pretty good. Yeah. I love that. I love that he's... Um, He's a pariah because, you know, most reviewers seem to have avoided the movie or or pretended to walk out or pander yeah. to the uh-huh. pander to the scolds who say he's banished forever for that. And they spend their time, you know, they write 9000 words on how Captain Marvel looks fierce in the trailer, mm. even though it's even though it's lit like a game show. Right. Um, like and, a pinball uh, machine, right? It looks like a pinball machine. It looks like a, a typical episode of that stupid shield TV show. But mm. but anyway, my point is. They've all like decided to try to, um, you know, shun him Amish style. So if you read a review, there's not really a review of the movie. It's just, you know, it's why he, what he's doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's why they're, the people writing the review are better than him. And what's great about this is I get to get there first on a lot of observations because nobody is talking about mm-hmm. all the interesting things in the movie. 
-hmm. They're not talking about the symbolism or, you know, that the movie's probably an indictment of himself and his own movies. They're avoiding all that stuff. I have not seen that once. And it's something that you and I both came came to, right? Um, I'm sorry, but yeah, finish your point. Yeah, no, I, I just think it's it's amazing that um, because people are just, you know, too too good for it, it's going to leave it wide open where I don't have to play catch up with, God damn it, I Googled that and I, somebody said that already. Yeah. That's like, you know, we said last time, there might have been two shows ago about you can't put the authority in the hands of the um, of a reader or a viewer any more than you can put the authority in the hands of the author because mm-hmm. it's an interpretive work mm-hmm. and it has everything and nothing to do with us, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, mm-hmm. I can't I can't wait to attach this movie directly to its creator. Well, no, I totally. <laughs> I no, because it, it does it. We're going to be it such hypocrites. This is going to be such yeah. such a hypocritical show. I well, love it. well, basically, like so. Before we even get into the plot, for anybody who is listening who hasn't seen it, I'll I'll do it real quick just so that you know people don't feel lost. So the house that Jack built uh, stars Matt Dillon. And uh, Bruno Gantz, I believe his name is pronounced. Uh, and basically, Matt Dillon is a very, very prolific serial killer. And the movie is structured in five parts and then an epilogue uh, where he sort of recounts the the killings that made the most impact on him. So the first two are kind of him in his early stages. Um, the first one is just him uh, bashing Uma Thurman's face in because she gets on his nerves. Uh, the second one is, it, it has a murder of a woman in it, but it's ostensibly about his OCD, which might've been actually my favorite sequence in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, it's fun. Yeah. It's funny and, and it's, it's accurate, I think, but I'll get back to that. Uh, and then there, the third one is him having a family who he then, uh, hunts down and murders. Um, the fourth one is a pretty brutal, it's like the second bit and the fourth bit are tied for my favorite bits of the entire movie. The fourth one is this this kind of brutal murder of this um, less than intelligent uh, blonde woman, uh, which, you know, why is that the best one, David? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> we'll, the, get you, we'll get you on the couch for that one. Yeah. And then the fifth one is basically his downfall. And then the epilogue is him in hell. So that's the whole movie. Sorry about that. Spoiler alert. Um, but the, the, real quick, something that you had mentioned um, about the internet scolds and uh, the newspaper scolds and what have you. There's a there's a thing that I, I think is interesting when when people call movies like this misogynistic or von Trier misogynistic. What's so interesting about that to me is that they seem to be missing the point that he himself knows that he's misogynistic, right? Um, and that the art itself is kind of him dealing with that. Like it's his therapist couch where he is coping with what he sees at least as his own kind of misogyny which is a complex thing it's not a black or white issue it's a very morally gray area so and it kind of seems to me like there are people who never examine that in their films like if you watch a brett ratner movie or michael Mm -hmm. bay for example it's extremely like sexist and misogynistic but it's never examined right because babes are just cool they look hot let's throw them in the movie in bikinis whatever it's more interesting and honest to me to, to see an actual artist. We were talking about auteurs, I think, uh, last episode. And it's interesting to see somebody actually grappling with that. So it doesn't seem fair. It seems like if you were to, um, you know, if you were to be the in the position of the therapist, right? And, and Lars, oh, Lars is on your couch and he's talking. It's like you wouldn't have to tell him 
you're a misogynist, right? Like as he's going, he's he's talking about all this. Kind yeah. Of shit, so it's not you know? you're not so you're not mad that they're that they're shining this light on him, or that they th- you're mad that they think they are that they exactly. that they're they're at step zero as far as what he's doing. Right. And it, it kind of reminds me of um, uh, Amy's been reading this book on uh, uh, fragile whiteness or something okay. something some title like that. Okay. So she's talking about how people confronting their um, their racism. And how and one of the um, you know the thesis of the book is that there's this this isn't all of us this this racism and that uh, you kind of have to deal with it so mm-hmm. that's why it's uh, that kind of reminds me of um, the catch twenty two of you're supposed to deal with it but as soon as you mention that you might have a thought that mm-hmm. might be a little troubling yeah I mean nobody would nobody would dare to do that. Right. Right. So how do you both face it and admit it? So it's constantly, why don't you admit it? And then constantly, you know, dinging you for admitting, um, these moments. Um, so with him, it sounds like he's stuck in that same thing where they're saying, admit you're sexist. And he's like, here is the, about the most naked version of myself on screen. I'm going to give you. And they're like, look at your sexist. (laughs) You just, you imagine him saying, well, okay. And I kind of see their point as far as I was reading one of those fake reviews where it was just, he was probably titled "Why I'm Never Watching Another Von Trier Movie," sure. and it said, but it had a line in there that I thought was interesting, where it said, "The person," and I'm going to probably mangle it, but you know, we're not a professional organization. Speak for yourself, it said, dude. It said something to the effect of, "Okay, I get it, but I'm tired of violence against women being used to draw attention to violence against women." Fair. And I've been stuck on that. I've been thinking about that a lot, but then again. I can't think of a better way or a more effective way to show violence against women than showing it. Mm-hmm. Like, do you trust that people will put it together that I don't even know what that person meant the, that the option should be, you know, is it, is it metaphor or is it um, the topic? I don't think that the person meant the topic shouldn't come up, mm-hmm. but it made me think of that. They, they have a point that we get it, you know, mm-hmm. things are, bad Mm -hmm. and i don't think i think that's giving him too much credit to say that he's trying to blow the lid off misogyny i think he's just trying to blow the lid off misogynists Mm -hmm. which is different which is different you know right whereas he's he's exposed in a way that and and, you know the guy is too much of a he's literally a troll he admits it he's too much of that kind of mentality that he has to he has to make you think that he's sympathetic to this horrible character but like we were saying earlier when we were talking about it, how do you mistake the fact that he might be against these sentiments if they're coming out of the mouth of a serial killer in a movie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, do you have to say, this serial killer is bad? And the thing is, he kind of addresses that you do, really, because if you look at this movie, it's just a big old list of every serial killer he could think of. There's so many shout-outs right. that, that I think he's sick of serial killers. And I think this is his way of saying, aren't you sick of these guys? Yeah, you know, yeah. but I'm I'm kind of jumping all over the place. But yeah, well, no, I, I mean, to, that's I wanted to unpack a... some of the some of the criticism. I think was fair. I wanted to unpack it a bit. There's a there's a lot you said there, yeah, for sure. But all, all of it, I think, was pretty good. The one thing that you said that I really loved that I want to kind of pull on is the idea that you can make a movie about misogyny without violence against women, but can you make a movie about a misogynist? Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's I, what I'm... I like. I like that a lot, and it's like. Because basically what he's, 
I don't I don't see it in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing actually like very uh, uh, sexy about this movie at all. You know, Matt Damon looks kind of like a skeleton, or not Damon, Matt sorry, Damon. Matt, Matt Dillon. <laughs> Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Dillon looks kind of like a skeleton, and, you know, like, it's all shot in these, like, gross, ugly colors, and there's well, no... not 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 at the end. At the end, he goes full Von, von Tryhard, and it gets yeah. very, very beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's after he's already dead, you know? And I mean, and I, I don't think that any of that is really even... I think like sexualized really. I don't know. I just there's nothing there's nothing appealing about that's why somebody Jeff Jackson asked me on on Facebook just now like would you recommend it? And it would be one of those ones where it would really depend on who I was talking to. You know, right. like I, I I couldn't just blanket recommend this movie to anybody. Um but I do want to anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to agree with you. And I think that going into it there's uh, if we start at the first murder I, I was off kilter enough where I thought thinking about who I would recommend it to. Like I watched it by myself because I thought, you know, thinking about his movie Antichrist and like, do I does Amy want to watch this with me? Is it gonna, you know, is it gonna be a struggle to get through it with mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's doesn't isn't eager to see it? Right. Um, so I thought I'll watch it myself. And as I watched that first leading up to the first murder, I was thinking, if you didn't know what was coming, like if you didn't know, if you weren't like five layers deep with this guy and know that he's that this is an artificial serial killer movie you know what i mean it's about it's about serial killer movies not necessarily killers that you might be pretty stressed with that first scene like you know that person's gonna die you know it's a very famous death Mm -hmm. uh they they set it up with so many hints you know the 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 jack that there she's going to fix her tire right and the jack is broken get it you know, mm-hmm. all the, all these things are hitting you over the head. And for me, I'm thinking it's it's the director saying, I don't even want to get I don't even want to guess. I want I have to do this thing I've committed to do. But how much can I play with the be, build up in the end? It's kind of like with um, uh, Cronenberg's crash. When you watch that movie, uh, when I first saw it, I thought I'm going to see some sweet car crashes and you don't see barely any car crashes. Uh-huh. And Cronenberg was asked about it, and he said, I'm not interested in the car crash. I'm interested in everything that leads up to it, and I'm interested in everything that happens right after it. Mm-hmm. And this, that's kind of what reminds me of this, where even though, I guess, the uncut version throws a couple more gratuitous moments in, those moments are over fast enough that it's the excruciating buildup, right? The mm-hmm. conversations, the, the conversation at the door, the conversation with his fake family, where everything is a joke that you know, like he's showing them guns and he's making comments about gun rights and he's wearing a red cap and it's like everything means something. So it's not really about the murder that would stress you out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he doubles down and tries to make those moments as disturbing as possible. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know if that's a failing, because um, he—I don't even know what I'm saying at this point. But the build-up at the beginning, I thought, does somebody who watches this that doesn't know that it's all about movies about this thing, would they be stressed, worrying when the murders start? And I don't know if they would. I don't know if anybody—I don't believe the walkouts. I hear about people walking out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why? Why? It's like, where? Where are you going? Did you? Did they see? These are the same people that love Mandy. The same people that love um, uh, the what's the fucking uh, the latest um, 
uh, action movie uh, massacre extravaganza. I can't think of the fucking name. I just watched it too. Oh, the um, not the night that eats the world. That oh, was the different... night the night comes for us or something like that. Yeah, that has ten times as much violence as this movie, even the uncut version. Because I hunted down what those scenes would be, because mm-hmm. we got the R rated, right? Yeah. So, um, so it's not the violence; it's the idea of doing it to an innocent person or lingering on it. Um, but he doesn't really—he's not really interested in that. So I don't even know what why anybody would leave. Like, what are you doing there if you're not watching a Von Trier movie? You know what I mean? Well, and if I you think... don't like him, then you're going there to score points and say you saw this new movie that you walked out. I don't know. I'm just that's, that's the thing, especially everybody who walked out very, uh, very publicly. You know what you're going to get. You've seen his movies before. You've heard the buzz because I believe this script had been floating around for years before he got to make it. So everybody, everybody knows what's coming. I don't. I don't believe that the. Uh, critics who went to this movie and then walked out. I think that they they walked out on purpose. I, I do I do think that it's kind of like a statement, right? It's which goes well, it's back to the fact statement. that like people people uh, people like to be again uh, recreationally outraged, and they saw a perfect opportunity here. And who's going to disagree with them? It's a you know misogynistic movie where a, a guy murders kids, and then this awful director lingers on their their dead bodies for longer than they would like. So you know it's a perfect opportunity. It's a slam dunk for people who like to be mad about shit, honestly. What's weird is, like I said, a lot of the people are that are the reviewers that did that very, um, very performative rejection of it. One review was actually it was a long review. It was probably 5000 words. And the person had left at um, I asked you, I was going to see when you actually predicted people walked out. And apparently the reviewer left at exactly the moment you guessed, which is when he's having his relationship with the girl named Simple or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's going to mutilate her. Um, that's the walkout point. So that person walked out with two hours to go. <laughs> so think about reviewing a movie, reviewing two hours less of a movie. You know what I mean? No, you know what that's, no, that's that another was, movie. But that, no, but that was, that was closer actually to the two hour mark. I think. You, you think it was about, well, it was about an I would say probably maybe an hour 20. Keep in mind the movie is two hours and like 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah the movie is five hours long. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it, there's at least an, there's at least a full movie left. Yeah. So maybe it's not sure. two hours. Um, there's at least a full movie because I was talking to somebody about when the movie got real beautiful with the, the descent into hell. And they're like, well, who cares? That was the last 10 minutes. And I was like, no. Dude, that's the that's the last half hour. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 thirty <laughs> minutes. Yeah, <laughs> that's thirty minutes of the movie, dude. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, but um, but no, yeah, and and I think that that's definitely the most uncomfortable part of the movie. But it's also the part of the movie, and this is what people it drove me crazy because nobody got this. So there's a point where he he ties uh, simple up to a radiator and he's ranting and raving. He's just gotten done essentially. What was that famous case in New York City where a woman was 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 like raped and murdered in an alley and nobody called the cops? I can't remember oh, what it was. Oh, uh, yeah, the uh, Kitty Genovese case. Yeah. But um, I know exactly what you're talking about because that, um, even though it seems to throw back to Kitty Genovese, like nobody's going to help, that yelling out the window, you're definitely right about that. But he has so many serial killers in this movie mm-hmm. that it's actually, a that's actually kind of his Jeffrey Dahmer moment. Hmm. Because if you remember the Jeffrey Dahmer case, he had drugged and started to abuse some kid and the kid ran outside to the cops that's right 
and the cops like, uh, can you take your boyfriend back inside the house? So the von Trier does it almost, I think there's dialogue that's almost word for word from that fuck up that that cop did, mm-hmm. except von Trier, <laughs> spoiler alert, tracks down the cop in what's probably one of the more heavy handed moments, mm-hmm. finds him, finds him rousting like black kids in the alley. And as a way of, it's, it's a, it's a pretty obvious move, right? He's saying, look at, you're wasting all this time harassing these kids when I'm up here, you know, mutilating this woman. And then he leaves a body part under the cop's windshield wiper. So it might be, that might be a, a check in the column of, are you supposed to root for him? You know, mm-hmm. if, if he's there sticking it to the cops, I thought that was a, it was an easy laugh. Um, well, but does it doesn't. Now that I think about it, does because he takes the, the the breast right, and does he staple it to a windshield? He puts it under the cop's windshield wiper as a way oh. of the way of saying, "See, you you weren't paying attention. Now I was right in front of you." I was going to say, "How does he staple it?" But anyway, um, but no. no yeah. Later, he makes he makes the other one into a change purse. That might right. be what you're thinking of. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> but no. So any so basically, one he ties her to the radiator. He's he gives her this little monologue, and it's something to the effect of he's like. Why is it always a man's fault? You know, it's if you're if you're born male, everything's always your fault. We're always the guilty party, always, and it's driving me crazy. And people hear that, and they take that at face value. But I'm like, the guy who's delivering that has a woman chained to a radiator. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, can you, you you're you're not seeing the the fucking the humor there, like the the well, even right. if it's not funny, like just like what he, what he's trying to do there. I no, I, I see. No, I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, to to try to get into their heads, I think their point is he's he's supposed to be. There's so many anti heroes these days. There's so many serial killer anti heroes that he, where does he start if he wants to make somebody repulsive? So there's always going to be the assumption that the guy's supposed to be adorable. He's supposed to be mm-hmm. funny, mm-hmm. and he and he is sort of endearing in the second. The first one, he's bullied into becoming a serial killer. And I think that that could you could make a case for, you know, the Uma, Uma Thurman character is supposed to deserve what happens to her because she's so aggressive. And mm-hmm. and it's so on the nose, you know, with that all that stuff about, um, well, you could just be a serial killer. And this is why you're too much of a whip to be a serial killer mm-hmm. and just goading him. And when I first saw the movie, I missed that. Was there a line that said that was his first victim? Because eventually you put it together, but if it's not, um, it changes everything. I don't you know? see. I don't know if it was or if it wasn't. I really don't know. I Imagine th- if it wasn't. If it wasn't, then that whole thing is just another, like fable. It's not. It's uh, again. It's not real. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. no one says that to the serial killers. The serial killers' fiftieth victim right. doesn't have that speech. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. No, I think it should. I think it should be the first one because he's he's not. He's not acting in a predatory way, right? And he keeps trying trying to drop her off, whereas every killing after that, he definitely is, you know, hunting, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. literally. Uh, so I, I would say that that's probably his first. That was the one that set it off because then it goes from that to, I, I guess, from there to his OCD. And he finds that he really enjoys cleaning up the mess and it makes his OCD go away. Right. Um, There's something my um, my sister sent me an email. She had a lot of thoughts on this, mm-hmm. um, and she and about that particular scene, she actually had a good point where she says um, that 
a lot of people are saying that the the woman she's so stupid, right? Look at all these these dumb women goading him into killing him or being so stupid and not understanding that they're doomed. And she said that she thinks that the women are intelligent and she thinks that instinctually they know something's wrong, but because men are so exhausting mm-hmm. <laughs> and because they have to deal with that women have they have they have the the way she puts it they have the strength to resign themselves to violence, while you know men are much more fragile. Well, these women are trying to do whatever they can with what they're working with, which is an American male. Yeah, which is a which is a uh, an exhausting piece of shit. If I follow what she was saying, no, I love that. Inter- I, think, I like I that a lot. I think, I, got, I, I think she's got a point. No, I love that interpretation a lot. I think that. The way I interpreted it was like if if they are stupid, it's because he's telling the story, um, and so every character is kind of yeah. She the says lens. through her lens, I didn't see all these things, but she says that you'll you'll see every way that women are taught to screen bad men, mm-hmm. that all these things are that Montreux made a point of putting all those things in there, like woman behind the um, behind the door mm-hmm. was like she. They do what they what anybody would have to eventually do, and that they're not idiots, as some have claimed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, I I agree with all that. I just I don't know what part of it I come down. I agree with everybody's both their criticisms and their enjoyment of the movie. Yeah. Like I think I think he is supposed to be a bit of an anti-hero, but only because I want to map on the filmmaker. Like right. how can you how can you deny? that the last scene when he sets up the, what I assume is a shout out to saw where he sets up a convoluted, like murder Rube Goldberg bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, and he realizes that he can't get focus on his scope. And he, and so come on, he, he can't get the shot. You know, uh... we, 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 we get it, dude. You can't get the, He backs up, he backs up. He can't get the shot. And you're seeing the frustration of, and so for him to say the a filmmaker is just I'm murdering people on screen as a filmmaker, right? At that moment, we are no different. That, that character in me. So indict me as you will. Hmm. Um, and then you kind of have to re you have, kind of have to rethink the movie if that's him, you know? Yeah. Then maybe they do have. There is a case to be made that he's more of an anti-hero. The guy puts a montage of his own movies in this movie. Dude, I know. That was, that that's, was, that's pretty, that was that's the, pretty cocky. That's dude, pretty I, cocky. I fucking laughed out loud when I saw that shit. I was like, this motherfucker <laughs> is putting clips from like, doesn't he put it like from his movie and then like other classics, you know, like there's like him and then, yes. then other ones. No, it's not yet. And, and world history. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I was just like, this is, this is amazing, like, dude. Yeah, that's some that's some some pretty big balls, right? That's like the we were making fun of uh, Axl Rose using Martin Luther King quotes to you know par- parallel his struggle with banging groupies yeah. to to like the fucking civil rights movement. Right. This dude is showing he's got to be taking shots at people that were mad at him about the Hitler thing because he's got Holocaust footage in this. Who in their right mind would put Holocaust footage in your serial killer movie? Like, what are you saying? Is, right. is he? What is he saying? Well, yeah, no, and I think that that's where it gets its most heavy. Those are the parts of the movie, I think, that were a little bit difficult for me. I did like the part about the grapes. There's a great digression in the movie about how to make different kinds of wine with different types of grapes. And, you know, I love people who do stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so 
So that scene and the scene actually where he talks to Simple on the little toy telephone where he picks it up and take, and there's this long red wire going from room to room and he's talking to her from the other room. That's probably my favorite scene. I like that kind of shit a lot. But to go back to the kind of philosophical treatises, um, those were the toughest things for me to swallow because I think that he really did just, he didn't have a whole, like, it was his back and forth, but his point is pretty simple. You can sum it up in, in one sentence, which is that, you know, violence is, is art, basically. Like, like violent, gross, right, mean yeah. things is art. For and sure. basically, like, and art has to be, like, an effect on other people. And so I think maybe the kind of, like, very disturbing conclusion that he's that he's drawing on is that, like, these world atrocities are works of art because they had so, such an effect on so many people worldwide, you know, such a profound effect on people. Okay. I, I guess I could see that. Maybe. I, I think he's... Uh, it's a pretty dark point if that's the point that he's making. Well, I, I think there's there's so many points in there. Like, like I said, not just that point, not just um, his own uh, celebration of his own movies. Mm-hmm. It's also a greatest hits of every serial killer both real and fictional that he seems to have crammed in there. As I was watching, when I started to notice them, I started to count them. And uh, it's got a um, Henry portrait of a serial killer moment as far as it's got the home invasion, right? Mm-hmm. It's got, the, do you, have you ever seen Funny Games? Yes, yeah. So Funny Games has the long conversation about the eggs and it's excruciating mm-hmm. where he's trying to he's trying to work, uh, talk his way into the house in Funny Games. We have that. We've got a Walt Whitman moment where he's at the top of a... Uh, tower shooting people from a tower that's mm-hmm. very purposeful combined with it's obviously supposed to be like a trumpian thing he's got a red hat mm-hmm. he talks about he is a good old boy moment it's got a ted bundy moment the fact that he has his arms in a sling to make himself look injured ted bundy did that mm-hmm. he had a fake, fake cast to look uh, vulnerable and he even says he even like says what ted bundy said to interviewers about why he's doing it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's got john wayne gacy moment um, it's got a Zodiac letters moment where he's writing letters that seemed really tagged, tagged on to the, where he's Mr. Sophistication or whatever, right, whatever. Right. So he's, mm-hmm. he's got his own, he's taunting them like Zodiac. He's got the Jeffrey Dahmer thing, which I already talked about earlier when he leads the drunk girl back to the house mm-hmm. in front of the cops. Um, and so that's, where does the taxidermy it, come from? Did somebody do taxidermy? Yeah, I think that's his Hannibal moment because if you watch Hannibal, Hannibal does a lot of corpse art. Mm-hmm. At the at the end of those shows, like there's a totem pole somebody makes out of corpses. There's, I think I joked around when I was watching it, like when do we get to the episode where somebody makes a car out of corpses? And then somebody said, I think they do, dude. So there might be an episode where there's a car made out of corpses. <laughs> so when he makes the house that Jack built, spoiler alert, it's made out of corpses. He builds a house out of dead bodies. Um, that's certainly like, here's here's your Hannibal moment right Right. um and it's and it's also kind of the the torture porn moment with the saw you know Mm -hmm. saw has Mm -hmm. people stuck in some sort of you know machinations by some tricycle riding madman I love the the cooler it was you know plot wise they needed it because the bodies had to be frozen enough to manipulate for the big the big ending which you probably started with Mm -hmm. because that's the title um I love the my favorite line in the movie is when he talks about how he got a hold of the freezer and because it, it was a good deal he got on pizza. Yeah. And then as a as a throwaway he says, 
Yeah, I only ate one of those shitty pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're just that's, like sitting there. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite line. Yeah, no, and it's um with uh oh god, what was I gonna say? I had it. Oh yeah, the house itself, right? So he tries to build a perfect house for a while, and he tries it with what is it, stone, and then he tries it with uh, wood, and and uh-huh. no, none of it's really working. And then there's a bit in his. Uh, in his monologue about what great art is and he's like great art is about the materials used right and so again to go back to uh, von Schur saying something here it's like you know his art is not simply made out of you know celluloid and film it's made out of right. bodies and lives you know <laughs> and <laughs> no and it's, it's so ridiculous because it's it's kind of like a adaptation do you remember the movie adaptation is him struggling to make the movie and that's more interesting than the movie right and this really does this does feel like von trier struggling to make a serial killer movie which is uh, kind of beneath him like i think i said to you it's both beneath him and kind of above him apparently yeah yeah because he, he couldn't take it seriously enough to he couldn't do it straight right but he also he's also constantly like shooting down his best moments like you can tell he's uncomfortable with the material mm-hmm. he has the the narrator is clearly weary with the with the other narrator mm-hmm. like it, everything that the guy says you hear the um is it uh is it dante or it's uh virgil virgil, virgil yeah. virgil's like uh he'll be like oh jack not that again or he'll say something that sounds really interesting and i'll say yeah that's a good point and, thing will, and then the narrator will say oh that old tired chestnut again jack yeah and yeah it's like you have to constantly um, qualify these things and not ever let us think you're sincere because you just don't want to commit to the material. That's what yeah, it Yeah, I found that really, really exhausting, actually. That, the, that Virgil really only existed to just, like, contradict him, basically. <laughs> yeah. And just be and like, it's, it'd you're be different just if... a regular psychopath. You're not so interesting, Jack. You're... This, uh, everything I say may sound suspiciously like having your cake and eating it, too. <laughs> and because like there's a moment in there that i think is i think is critic proof i think the lamp post analogy the the shadows between lamp posts that. yeah that was great when the second shadow begins and the first shadow thins he knows he has to kill again and it's done in a, it's presented in a beautiful way that is so interesting and great and then of course the narrator the narrator who is like the represents filmmaker the other side of his brain mm-hmm. can't help but shit all over it and say oh you can use that analogy with anything can't you jack it's like yeah. fuck you dude yeah, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. best it's the best part of the movie and you could you, you couldn't not shit on it right, right i think right. i think that is closer to what his feelings are about his own product i, I think it's it. it's like adaptation i think it's a representation of him failing to make the movie he thought he was going to make. You know, I, I like this idea of it being a cobbled together failure of a movie um, because, excuse me, oh my goodness, burp time. Um, but uh, no, I like I like the idea of it being a cobbled together thing because think of, I mean, his movies do act this way. I mean, the, most of them are in chapters, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Nymphomania was in chapters. I think Antichrist was in chapters. Um, right. But anyway, but... Like each one of the chapters Melan- of these movies, Melancholia was in uh, two chapters, split up with the sisters. Right, right, right. And I think I think that every single part of this movie, all six different parts of this movie, Matt Dillon is playing a different character each and every time, and they feel like five short films that are very, very loosely connected. 
you know i think that there's yeah and there, definitely and, and there's an ad-libbing vibe isn't there didn't you yeah. feel like he might have been ad-libbing that attempt well, because to get he into goes, the house he goes from like uh he goes from like this very kind of stilted 70s uh well ma'am i'm i'm kind of busy and i don't really have time to be dealing with you and then he, he puts on mm. those weird glasses those btk glasses and in the second part and he's like oh i uh yeah i'm a cop and uh, this and it's this very like hammed up kind of thing but then it's like right. and then you and then you get to the third one and he's still ham he's really hamming it up he's playing like you said the good old boy right. right but then you get to the fourth part and his acting suddenly becomes like very what i would call realistic quote unquote. like he becomes just like very sinister and gross looking and then in the fifth part it's it's like he gets more and more natural as the movie goes on. The fifth part has my favorite line in it where so he has all these guys tied up and he's going to try to shoot through all of their heads with one bullet, but the guy at the at the gun store uh, like sells him a a bad bullet, like a bullet that's not a full metal jacket that can't go through each and right, every right. one of those heads, right? So the the guy who he um has kidnapped recently uh, when he's when he's about to when he's telling them what he's gonna do, he's like, "Sir, that's not a full metal jacket, sir. I'm in the military, sir. That's not a full metal jacket." <laughs> and he looks at it and he's like, "God damn it, you're right." So he goes back and he's really pissed off, yells at the gun shop guy, gets his full metal jacket. And the best line of the movie is when he comes back and he like holds it out to the guy who's still, you know, he's got his neck bound to this pole <laughs> with these other guys in this <laughs> saw s contraption. And he goes, "Is that a full metal jacket?" And the guy goes. Sir, yes, sir, but please don't. And like he interrupts him, he's like, "Yes, excellent, perfect." And, like, <laughs> and that line is like so perfectly delivered. But it feels right. it just it does feel like just I different character. Like as it moves on, there's just different characters that he's playing. I think he's. I think he started to get his groove. There's yeah. so many French edits in that movie, you know, where those oh, the jump, jump cuts, cuts jump the cuts, jump yeah. cuts, which is what made, and he he likes jump cuts. You, there's a lot of them in Melancholia, and I think the that he uses a, a lot when he's he's starting to you know he's stopping the scene where it peaks and i think he's also editing out a lot of failed attempts to ad lib their way through those moments mm-hmm. i think so many of these things are encounters where uh, it, you can just sort of feel like he said let's see how this goes you know what what are we going to get oh I, the idea of that of that uh screen door scene actually being like a one take thing yeah yeah it, it's it's definitely feels like it was that actor saying and he's like he, he, he just try, told, try he just told he just told matt dylan like talk your way in talk right, your way and in that, and if you look at it that's the the time when there's fewer of those edits so it's if you don't chop out all of them, then you get a stack of excuses of him trying to get in the door that don't necessarily fit together and kind of work better mm-hmm. because here's somebody just pivoting and rather than on the set, you know, oh, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. He'll fix it in the editing room. Yeah. And with yeah. the, you know, the, in real life, nobody fixes it in the editing room. So here that, that fucked up moment with him being bad and faltering, um, is kind of where I started to engage more with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's like, I don't know. It, are we supposed to be, you can't help but root for him to get in the door, right? You can't help right. but hope he's going to make it work. Right. Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, like I was actually hoping that she would just like slam the door on him and then he'd like kick it open or he'd have to resort to, you know, brute force. He's like, ah, oh, foiled again. And then it but just don't you want him to. Well, if you're if the viewer is attached to a certain character that's followed him to another scene, I mean, don't you just kind of get stressed when it's not things aren't working out for him like you want him to oh, get sure. away? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the cop shows up and the OCD, 
he, I like that stuff too. Like you said, I hadn't really seen that before in a movie where the a killer is like, I got to go back. I got to go back. Right. And, right. Which and happens the, to me sometimes, but like with the stove, it'll happen to me with the fucking <laughs> stove all the time. I'll right. check the stove like five times. I'll walk out of the door and like a part of my brain, you know how it does that, like that drum music that and like in his mind's eye, he can he sees somebody <laughs> like lifting up a chair and there's a blood splatter there. So he has to go back and look under the blood. Like for me, it's that and then like it's the it's the burner set to 375 or something like that. I'm like, God damn it. I got to go back. Um, what's, what's up with him cranking the David Bowie music all through this? I hated that because the, I watched it on YouTube. So I, I bought the HD on YouTube. By the way, Google Play sucks. I'm just, this is just uh, my shout out. Watch that shit on YouTube if you have, I know you get it on iTunes, right? Um, right. But. Um, this one, I, this one I did. But for you, was the audio for fame like really loud? Like way louder than the rest of the movie? Like it just, it it actually he's hurt got, my ears every David, time it came on. He's such a weirdo. He's got, like with Dogville, Dogville has the total blue moon ending that we make fun of the mom, 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 dang, dang, dang. It ends with a horrible, it ends with a horrible moment. And then he cranks David Bowie, young Americans Mm -hmm. while showing all these sort of real Americans and atrocities. Mm -hmm. You're like, what are you, what are you even saying? Do you just like this song? So in his mind, he's, I think as he gets older, it's in his mind. He's like, "Oh yeah, David Bowie, that American." <laughs> so he busts out the he busts out fame to represent like the American idiot, I guess. Sure. Because he the song plays like what three times, and it it's plays in moments of sort of sort of triumph for him. Well, it's like, it's like the, you the, have the one two... David Bowie greatest hits CD. He can't help but use his one CD. Well, the the, the yeah, the two refrains in the movie are David Bowie's fame, and then the black and white video of Glenn Gould, right? Uh, it's going... Yeah. <laughs> yes, and they keep saying, the piano player represents art. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. All right, all right. And Glenn Gould, actually... Glenn like, Gould what do you do with a, all that? What you... He's written a lot of interesting stuff on yeah. art. Like, he's a he's a cooler guy to, like, listen to, I think, than, than the, his music. Glenn Gould had a lot of interesting stuff to say about, I don't know, making music and art and stuff like that. But, but no, I... Uh, I actually like. I kind of. He goes from like Glenn Gould to. to go ahead. Oh no, I'm done. Can you hear me? Okay. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, we had a kind of a seat. I yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear Hello? you. Hello. Oh, okay. We had kind of a CB radio effect going there for a minute. Oh, we had, I see. We had a delay. I see. I see. Google okay. heard you ripping on him. Google's <laughs> fucking with us now. <laughs> Um, oh man, I had but yeah. Something... Starting with a, he's got the smash. Well, I was just gonna say he starts with the right at the beginning. You know you're both in good hands and in trouble when he starts with a smashed face of Uma Thurman, and then all of a sudden you get all that stuff about uh, the Glenn Gould piano playing and architecture and overlapping paintings and Jack's the artist too or whatever. And you, at that point, you have to like make your decision: is is this making fun of the grandiose absorbed serial killer or is it the director showing his hand or is it both is it everything you know what i mean mm-hmm. so if you, if you if you don't think it's fun like i think that's fun i think it's fun if he's that obnoxious or that overt or or like with adaptation a lot of people didn't like the movie adaptation because it showed its hand you know it's here it's all on the surface right and i enjoy it like if if you don't enjoy it, um, 
at that moment, I think that's when you might as well not watch the rest. If if you are irritated enough with the when he starts doing the montage of wonderful architecture over Uma Thurman's smashed face, then you're not going to like the rest of it. And also that kind of like, as, as, as we're coming up on the hour here, I want to sort of segue in like everything that you're talking about makes me think about stuff that we've been talking about with movies in general recently, which, you know, you brought up his tendency because he does he does the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-dang-a-dang thing in this movie too when uh when matt he dylan's does. character the, falls into hell it's like song. hit the road jack and don't you come back no more, no more. So, so dumb it's really so dumb. really dumb and a lot of the stuff that he does in this movie is super on the nose it's pretentious it's clunky it's half-baked it's like improvised the, 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 every line out of uma thurman's mouth is so on the nose it's so dumb she's like What's the worst thing that could happen? And I think, you know, if you're you know, serious, my, my unpopular opinion, I think Uma Thurman's a pretty bad actress. Like, I I just don't think she's that good. Like She was really good when she was younger. Like, uh, Dangerous Liaison, she was great in that. She really, played the... Really? She has kind of a wide-eyed innocence kind yeah. of thing going on in that. Well, she has this like kind of, like... Per, you didn't like Kill Bill? I, di- I did, but it, this, like, her... The way she delivers her lines in this one is, like like the worst version of Kill Bill. You know what I mean? Where I noticed that you had a jack there. Hmm, I wonder if you were going to kill me, you'd probably bash my head in with it, wouldn't you? Um, but, you know, I, I say all that, and then I, I I completely double back on it because, I mean, that's the same thing that's happening in every uh, David Lynch movie, right? Like everybody's overacting, and it's that thing where you let it really be known that it's a movie, and it's like it's it's stylized, right? It's stylized character acting. There's nothing really wrong with it. I take back what I said. Uma Thurman's good. Um, well, I know I, I know what you're saying. I was irritated with her at the beginning a little bit because I felt like the director wasn't helping her out. Mm-hmm. I felt like they she was she put them in the car and and gave him a, a broad idea of what to do, mm-hmm. and with a, a better um, with somebody with more of a handle of what to do in that moment. Those. Yeah. Those scenes really ring. Like well, the with, problem uh, the problem was, the yeah, is that she just wasn't annoying. She actually wasn't annoying. She was persistent, she, right? But she wasn't like annoying. The, think about the character of Simple, who you you pointed out. She's in what other movie was she in? Hold recently? the dark. Yeah. So clearly, a lot of range. That's not just some dimwit actress that the, he threw in there and is like, "You're in over your head. Do what you can." Mm-hmm. Like that person really nailed that performance. She did. Oh, she killed it. She was the best one in this whole movie. Riley Keogh, I think her name is. Keogh? Keogh? Yeah. Yeah, and she did it in a way that the Uma Thurman character didn't. And I think it might go to your point of he was kind of getting a handle on what he wanted to do as he went along. Do you think he By shot the time it chronologically? He got to that scene, that's, maybe, I don't know. I think that that's, that other scene felt like it was there was a lot going on. There was a lot of not just let's take a let's sit, do some banter in a car. Instead, there were very specific uh, like lily pads of moments right he had to do the phone he had to do the thing outside it was like a mini play mm-hmm. all of them are kind of like little little standalone pieces but that one felt a little more worked on a little more polished uh-huh. even yeah. though ironically the char- the character had less important scare quotes things to say yeah the simple character got a lot out of uh like out of her face you know out of mm-hmm. her emotions yeah she did way better than then the big, then the big Oscar, was she an Oscar winner? Uma Thurman nominated, probably. I don't know. You know, now the I'm big, kind of the obsessed big, with this the idea that superstar. 
I think I think you might be onto something. I think he might shoot his movies chronologically. Now that I think about it, because didn't you say over text the other day, like like every other Von Trier movie, this gets much better as it goes on. But could that just be like a if he's literally shooting it in order? Because didn't he do the Dogma ninety five thing and they had all those rules where was one of the rules you had to shoot in chronological <laughs> order? Uh, it might be. I know that the no, um, you know, I know outside sound or no sound effects. It had to be right. all natural di- dialogue. And all that stuff too. still lingers in his movies, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, that I think that he might be kind of addicted to that magic you get from those moments mm-hmm. on the set when you're stuck with those rigid rules. Mm-hmm. But he clearly is bursts forth from those rules, right? Mm-hmm. When he starts doing, literally puts paintings on the screen. I would say that that's kind of consistent with, not with uh, Antichrist, which starts off with that black and white slow motion film, mm-hmm. with the them having sex and the and the, the child falling out of the window. Hilarious, that one by feels the way. like um, that's that's definitely a different ver. That's not him like getting better as he goes. Like he that one he was locked into everything he wanted to do. But mm-hmm. I would say Melancholia definitely gets better as it goes. There's a lot of uh, banter that goes nowhere in that with the family at the wedding. I get it that we're supposed to feel anguished at that wedding, but when he starts to really, it's almost like he starts to pay attention to his own movie. Yes. And then it gets, it gets, it gets big. It gets colossal, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, and okay. So that actually brings me back to the point that, that I was getting to, which is that, you know, the movie is all of these things. Like I said, it can be clunky, clumsy. It's beautiful. It's ugly, all these things. But what it does feel like is like a person made it, right? A person made this movie. And it feels like people were involved in the in the construction of it. And it does kind of feel like he's mm-hmm. sort of figuring it out as he goes along. You can tell he really wanted to do a few things in this movie. The house, the hell scene, etc. And then the rest of right. it, he's like, ah, oh, we'll fucking, we'll fix it in post. We'll figure it out. And then he really focuses on these <laughs> other parts. But like, but that's the kind of shit that I want to watch. I want to see that. Yeah. You know? I don't want to see stuff that's I... been workshopped to death. I want to see something that like, where you can tell that the director cares about some things and doesn't care about other things and has a personality is maybe a misogynist. Maybe he's a little, I don't know, maybe he like, maybe he hates white people or something. I don't know. Like just, just a personality trait that's ugly, you know, that you can see up there on screen. Paul Verhoeven, right? Directors like that, sure, Montreal, sure. Verho- all these pervy old European dudes. I would argue they're all going to die soon, and then who's left? I, think, I, I would argue Lynch does it too. Lynch, yeah, oh sure, he gets, he's got in his in the the new series, he's got himself with all the, he's got like a, he's leering at these younger women and mm-hmm. every, anybody else they would call him out, but because right. he's beloved David Lynch, yeah. it's it's like okay that he's got doesn't he have like FBI agents sitting on his lap or did I just have a dream about that I, that might be a dream but th- I mean <laughs> okay. it's, it's very it's like she'll walk out of the room and he'll be like he'll look at uh, Miguel Ferreira and they'll both be like waka waka you know like, get a can... get a look at that coop <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask you something about uh, um, did you see Deadpool 2 no I missed that one you don't have you don't have to it's it's not great, but it's got a very clever character where um, the superpower is the the um, she's very lucky, mm-hmm. and they make fun of it. They're like, "Wait, so you're just lucky? How's that going to do anything at all?" And she's like, "Don't worry about it. It's going to work itself out." So then you find out that as the movie goes along, if she if somebody like pulls a gun on her, it won't go off. If she 
like lets go of the steering wheel the car goes where she needs it to go and the the uh you know ryan reynolds character um starts to he's like god damn this is you know this really works out well you being lucky mm-hmm. and what's hilarious about that is it's a great it's a great commentary on superheroes right they're sure. so lucky yeah that and and i started to think about that character while watching this because there's a lot of moments where he is so lucky ridiculously mm-hmm. lucky a couple times right before they play the david bowie song when he drags the body away i love and then that. the rain the great. rain saves his ass yeah remember the rain saved him because he had a, he left a literal blood trail all the way to his creepy lair yeah it's amazing and the rain took, the rain took care of it for him so He's got that same luck and just where the same way that the domino character's luck was com was a comment on superheroes. It was like an indictment of how silly they are, which was very smart of them. I think the luck of the serial killer is definitely like a commentary on a movie on the artificial nature of the movie and that his luck is rationalized as like everything that you're seeing is on purpose at the hand of the director. So but I would, I, but I end that with an ellipsis, like, so therefore yeah. what? I don't know, therefore <laughs> what? But I think that he's, he's basically saying, I am at the hand of a director, so I'm lucky. I'm a, I'm right. a killer in a movie, and um, I don't know. I don't know what it means. What do you think, but... uh, what do you think Trier's saying by having Jack, when Jack goes to hell, he looks out into the Elysian fields and sees, you know, this beautiful golden place. And it's right. this window, and, and Virgil tells him, oh, we can't get there from here, because he's going to hell. Now, there's this great part at the very end where Virgil shows him, like, the well of souls, the eternal, like, tormented, damned, and he's like, this, oddly enough, is not where you're going. You're a few levels up. And he's like, beats me. I don't know. <laughs> and, like, what do you think that's about, man? He's like, actually, you're not the worst. So who is the worst? Who's in that Who's in that pit, if not him? Right. I would say, well, if we're still got Von Trier on the couch, I would say he would put critics, as journalists. The, well, he would put them there, but he would also put anyone who's not aware of what they are. Mm. And so, if he's if Von Trier is like I am Jack, and I'm sending myself to hell, I'm not the worst person in the world because look what I did to myself. That's my theory, anyway. Mm. Let me let me take a sip of my my coffee with that theory. Hold on. Mm. Oh, is it good? Oh. I'm sticking. I'm sticking by it. <laughs> Standing by it. No, and but then, yeah, uh, like, and then basically, good. Oh, basically, he looks at he looks down at the well, and he notices that there's a bridge, and he's like, "Where does this?" Uh, and the bridge is broken in the middle, right? And he's like, "Where does that go?" And Virgil says, "Oh, well, it goes up to heaven, basically." And uh, he notices that they're in this sort of circular. Uh, chamber, kind of like a, a silo with a waterfall of lava going over the edge. And he's like, well, can't you just climb around? And Virgil goes like, many have tried, few <laughs> have succeeded. No, and he said like, none, none have succeeded. None, oh, none have succeeded. And he's like, I think I'll take my chances. And then he goes <laughs> for it. So like, what? And, and again, like, that's just Trier dunking on himself. You know, he's like, my hubris is eventually going to catch up to me. You know, I think that I'm the one who's going to be the one guy who wins over people by just being myself, right? By just being the, the most Lars von Trier I can possibly be. I'll win them over. And I'm going to get about halfway there because remember, he gets about halfway. And then, whoop, he slips and, you know, lost in, in the in the waves of history. So I really do think that that's like Don't a, you come back no more. No yeah, yeah, more. yeah. I really do think that that's him saying, like, 
you know, people are like half are always going to love me, half are always going to hate me. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because the hate is just it's that piercing, shrill scream of thousands of damn souls. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it, it, it's, it doesn't matter because it, it's just going to swallow me up eventually. But that's that's my interpretation of that ending, anyway. I'll take it. It makes as much as much sense as anything else. I yeah. mean, we're we're dealing with the, the you know the house that jerk off built. Otherwise, basically. it's like it's a, it's a wouldn't big, it be cool it's, if it's masturbation. Goes, wouldn't it be cool if he goes to hell <laughs> and there's many places where we can look very artistic and then he falls into the pit because whoopsies, <laughs> oh, and he has a little slip and fallen. <laughs> I don't know if that's how he talks or not. That's just how I'm just, I'm sure he does. I'm just relieved that when he went to hell, at least were you, were you worried he was going to break the fourth wall and he was going to end up like in Von Trier's house or something. And like, it, it was, it felt like it was getting to where hell was definitely the better option than it going totally meta. Yeah. It, it was starting to dabble in some meta-ness yeah. that was scaring me. Yeah. I like, like well, at least Hell's better. Yeah. Hell's one, better one than other point, possible One thing that I want to point out that I think is funny <laughs> is that apparently this guy lives in the woods of Oregon, but of course, like, his best friend is some other, like, German guy who just lives out there. He's like, you always were the best shot. He's like, that is right. I always was the best shot. Me, the native of Portland, Oregon, living out here <laughs> in the woods. Just crazy man in the woods. Which, you talking about the guy, the guy in the trailer? I the guy in the trailer, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just thought that that was funny. I was like... There's all these weird, oddly European people in this movie with like strange accents, but you know, whatever. <laughs> That's like Von Trier's like, here, welcome to America. Welcome to the Midwest. And then the gas station attendant is that Udo Cure guy. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Which I like more. You know, I, I like the idea of, I, I said this a long time ago because in my first book, you know, I wrote about Siberia, but I was like, I actually think everybody should just write books about the furthest place they can possibly imagine. Because I, I want to read, like, an African guy's account of, like, Los Angeles. You know what I mean? Having never been there, only seeing films about Los Angeles. Like, well, I sure, want to I want to see the the, Afri- the guy from, like, Cameroon or something. I want to see his movie about L.A., you know? Well, that's the, that's the reversal that, of the, um, you know, the old, the old saying, you know, uh, write what you know. And, um, but the reversal is what, people are much more successful with is the know what you write, which means right. your life is not that interesting, you know, get over yourself. Sure. Uh, so just, you know, read a couple books on something and you'll, yeah, you know, the ideas will start firing. Or like you said, watch a movie on it. It's probably got all you need. Pretty much. Look, I at, mean... look at Ron Schur. He's only watching movies that he makes and look, he made another movie. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't even need other movies. Just a couple a couple newsreels of World War II and his own perfect <laughs> films. <laughs> With movies like these, why do you need anything else, really? It's amazing. Oh, All right, man. That's an hour. Shit. I think that's good. Do you think we... we I, want, I just want to say to the listeners, I feel like I wanted to say, like... Well, because we were like, oh, we're going to be positive this time because last one was such a bitch fest. But our last episode was our most positive, uh, like popular episode so far. So People were popular, but people were also kind of mad at us because we were making fun of bird bots. Yeah. Did you see Did you see the bots? The bird bots yeah, are making Yeah, let's talk about that real quick before we go. The Can bir- you give a recap? The bird bots? Well, I was just... Um, I was just kind of annoyed that uh, Netflix came out and said... They've never released 
viewer stats before, right? So they've so Netflix very craftily said, "Hey guys, guess what? We just checked our viewer stats for the first time uh, ever. We're going to share them with you, and more people have watched our new movie than than ever, ever before." But when you look at the numbers they put out, it really means that they have a better opening week as far as eyeballs than any movie in the history of any movie ever. Yeah, that if somebody did the math on it, and it would have been. Uh, what's the the highest grossing movie is Infinity War, the first one, or Black Panther? Uh, it it buries them by by you know millions. So it's smacks of bullshit. It sounds like yeah. It sounds like they just picked a number. Right. And um, somebody somebody made the joke of that number. They didn't even need to exaggerate because of all the people sharing Netflix accounts. Right. That you, know, you, you could have said anything, and we we would imagine our five relatives are sharing our accounts anyway, so it's still impressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's like uh, I don't know, and there was a bunch of memes popped up of people saying, "Oh, look at we're the blindfolded people doing funny things," and somebody looked at the. Um, the Twitter feeds of the people and they just sprung into existence and made these memes. So like a um, friend of mine was saying, move, these studios have been doing this. They, they make their own promotional materials and why would a meme be any different? So what's my problem with what, what's my problem with the bird bots? Right. Mm. Um, and I don't even know, except that maybe if I liked the movie better, I wouldn't be so annoyed mm-hmm. by the manufacture, the manufactured excitement. Right. I don't know. No, it, it's like it's it's just it is one of those things. It's where like it's it feels like, like high school. I don't know. It just feels like everybody has a consensus reality where like that's the cool thing. You know what I mean? And it's like, and we all kind of know well, that it's not. Well, I was talking to somebody else about it, and they're like, they were pointing out uh, what they considered a flaw of the movie, and. Um, and it seemed like such a minor flaw to the things that, that I was talking about, which were the the visual stuff that they left out of the book. The fact that she didn't blind the kid or didn't consider blinding the kids. And I don't even know if we talked about it in the last episode, but when she gets to the sanctuary, it's just a big paradise. Where in the book, you're terrified that they're going to blind them, that that's right. like how you stay sane. So the blinding will happen. None of that stuff is in the movie. And apparently just nobody cares that that stuff isn't in the movie. And they think it's very insignificant, and I would argue it's tied directly to sight, which mm-hmm. is tied directly to the main conceit of the movie. Mm-hmm. So if you really do love the material, then why are you so eager to say that this is so perfect and terrifying when it's it's just a by-the-numbers, shot-like-a-soap-opera, made-for-TV deal? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yep. But it was our, that but movie. It, it was our most popular episode. It's our most popular episode. Yeah, maybe people and wanted to. I think probably like we'll go. One. We'll go back to like, you know, twenty people listen to this one. We'll be like, all right, looks like we're gonna just gonna have to shit on <laughs> stuff from now from here on out. We're gonna have to get real dark with it. Like, yeah, where's that Donnybrook movie? <laughs> <laughs> you cannot wait to take a shit on Donnybrook, dude. You're so excited. I just don't. Hey, I like I liked uh, Crimes of Southern Indiana, but I don't like Fra- uh, Grillo. What's his name? Frank Grillo. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. He he wronged me with Wheelman, and I'm I'm about to get him now. All right. So All right. We'll, see. we'll see. And that's it for 2018. Thanks, guys. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no 